Snafu is a podcast that contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. Hey guys, welcome to Snap Food, where the situation's normal, all fucked up. This is the podcast where we tell you stories of true crime, true mystery, and the truly fucked up shit that happens every single day that we just forget about. So, we decided that we wanted to remind you. I'm Shannon, and thank you guys for stopping by and giving us a listen. This week, it's only going to be me again, because Corey is still in the process of moving, but... Don't worry, you guys. I'm just going to do my best to charge ahead and hopefully maybe even be entertaining. Who's to say? (laughs) But I feel like it's a real shame that Corey doesn't get to be here for this episode because this week would really freak Corey out. This episode, I'm going to be talking about bodies, and we all know how much Corey loves that. So that being said, I have a question for you guys. Does everyone use soap? Um, (laughs) now I'm sure a few of you just said, one nasty bitch ain't using some soap, but the thing is, most of us aren't using soap proper. Many of us, in fact, are using synthetic detergents, and that includes most of the soap bars you're going to get from the grocery store today. You see, soap is a pretty necessary cleaning agent that humans have been producing for, oh, you know, thousands of years, which means it's a very basic recipe. In order to make soap, you need to mix a fatty acid with an alkali metal hydroxide, and that produces sapontification soap. And you're probably thinking, huh? What now even? And that's okay, because it really just means that you take a fatty acid, which is usually in vegetables, and you get it from things like coconuts or olives or palm oils, or you can get it from animal fat which is also called tallow. And in fact, the most popular form of this that's being used for making soap would be that of beef. You need to mix this fatty acid with an alkaline solution like lye or sodium hydroxide. And this in the end causes saponification. And that just means that it's a conversion of fat or oil into a glycerol and a fatty acid salt or soap and alcohol. And humans have been making these soaps for thousands of years. The earliest recording that we've ever seen of it being made is in Babylon around 2800 BC. The first written formula comes from the same area from 2200 BC. So as long as we've been nasty and stinky and have had the opportunity to spend time helping ourselves not be that way, we've been trying. Just not as much as people today would have liked. So even though I'm really a little freaked out by the use of animal fat, I mean, I have to admit, like, had I not known it, I would have still been using these products and it wouldn't have bothered me, right? So it just is what it is. And I just have to admit, our ancestors obviously made the best of what they had. It works. We made it this way. That's what we do. Luckily for me, that's not how we have to do it anymore. And that's nice for me. But what we often fail to realize is that we as in the human body, we have all the same components to make soap as a cow does. And sometimes we do this naturally. And then sometimes, well, people do this on purpose. That's right. This week, we're going to talk about all the ways that human beings ruin soap. (laughs) Or more realistically, 
We're going to be talking about the soap lady as well as Leonardo Cianciali. It's an Italian name I can't say. So here we go, you guys. Much like your cow or your sheep or even your coconut, like I said, human beings and all their fat can also be turned into soap. But most often we've discovered this fact from the simple discovery of some very old bodies. So, in an 1852 Scientific American article, there's this mention of a cemetery in Paris, and it was in the process of being moved. In a lot of cities where there's only so much room, it, for centuries, has been a habit of clearing out cemeteries after a certain number of years, usually something like 15, 25. Once bodies have the opportunity to completely break down or something close to it, it seems like it's an okay thing that a lot of people can move these cemeteries or move the bodies, expand space for the newer bodies that are going to need to be put there or other buildings. It just so happens that when they were trying to move this cemetery, that the unfortunate construction workers discovered that a portion of the cemetery's residents had not decayed, but in fact had been turned into fat. The way that their bodies had been so deep in this moisture ground, they had all turned into a big pile of goo, essentially. And it turns out, well, you'd think the residents would have an issue with this, but they didn't see it that way. The article goes on to say that tons of this graveyard jello was actually collected and used by the local soap boilers and tallow chandlers of Paris in order to make soap and candles. That's right. Maybe the reason why all her spooky ghosts are all from the 16 and 1700s because they're just pissed off that our great-great-grandparents decided to dig them up and then use them to wash our nasty bits and light our living rooms. I don't know. I'd probably be pretty mad too. <laughs> but back to the point, and that is that this graveyard jelly, as I so uniquely called it, um, it does actually have a lot of fun names. It can be called corpse wax, grave wax, mortuary wax. Um, I guess it wasn't all that fun or unique. <laughs> Look, its real name is adipocere, and this is formed the same way almost as soap is. So it's created by an anaerobic bacterial chemical reaction to fat and tissues, and this is only going to happen in environments with high levels of moisture, but an absence of oxygen. As long as there's oxygen, this isn't going to happen. So what we're really talking about is bodies that would end up at the bottom of a lake, but maybe pushed under some sediment where the fish can't get to it. Or maybe a body that's been placed deep in some mud. It's wet, it's moist, but there's no air getting down there. Or in the case of these cemetery occupants, you have loads of dirt put on top of your sealed casket that eventually breaks down. So... Surprisingly, this doesn't just work on natural bodies, but it also works on bodies that have been embalmed too. That was one of my first questions was, well, when the chemicals that we pump bodies full of so that the decay process is slowed down, would this create this not to happen? And the fact is, is that our bodies are just so filled with fatty tissue that it just really doesn't seem to be an issue whatsoever. It really just comes down to what the environment is. And it only takes about a month for the formation of adipocere. And like I said, as long as the lack of oxygen continues, these bodies, adip this adipocere, can exist for literal centuries. 
And what it looks like is crumbling, waxy, water-resistant material that is either like a grayish white or a tan in color. It really just depends on what color your fatty tissue was. In a way, you're essentially turning into something of a soap mummy. <laughs> but it's not like your Egyptian or your Peruvian corpses where you've seen, you know, distinct human features and there's always a lot of really fine detail. Those are, you know, that's not what we're looking at here. It's going to be a lot more like a, a gray blob with some body shape and maybe some facial features. That is unless your body ends up somewhere that it forces a firm cast, probably somewhere where it had a lot of pressure being weighed down onto the body. In that case, you can actually end up leaving some really good forensic evidence. So in the past, we've discovered things like, well, we found a 13th century infant brain. And it even had enough of an imprint to define certain parts of his brain, like the cortex. And, you know, that's just amazing. That would be something that most scientists would have probably thought they'd never, ever get to see. Because how long does it take for a human brain to actually break down? But this is from the 13th century. To top that off, it's also allowed for a lot of positive remains to be identified in, say, murder victims. It's really good at preserving death wounds. This is very similar to, like, bog mummies. It's just, it's a good preservative of the body itself. And in saying that, we kind of have to cue the soap lady and man of Philadelphia. That's right. America's got its very own soap mummy attraction site. And you can actually see her today. In fact... I already have, just not today. She is currently over at the Mutter Museum, which happens to be a medical teaching museum in Philadelphia. And I'm just going to say, like a little sidebar, it's an amazing museum. It's definitely worth a stop off. They have all sorts of items there. And it's essentially, its main form was to be informational to medical students. They could come in there and they could see medical oddities and all this stuff of a collection would be there for them to learn from. But it's not just made for doctors anymore. Like they've done an excellent job of procuring some really interesting medical items. There's a skeleton of a giant compared to that of a dwarf. They have Siamese twins. They have the cranium of someone who died from syphilis. I mean, there's a lot of very unique items that even like we probably talked about a bunch of these things already on the podcast alone. And it's, you know, nowadays with all the information we can garner, this stuff doesn't only have to be taught to a doctor. Like you can go in and see what a spinal column looks like for yourself. I think one of the most unique things in this entire building besides the soap lady happens to be that they have a little partition off for uh, John Wilkes Booth the assassin of President Lincoln, and they have a couple of his bones and his background history. So it's just, it's a really cool place. And if you got the time, I suggest stopping by because I was not disappointed. <laughs> Off my soapbox and haha, <laughs> back to talking about the soap lady. Back in 1875, the city of Philadelphia had been working on a construction project and it ended up uncovering two corpses that had been turned into soap mummies. So at the time, Dr. Joseph Leedy, the guy also known as the father of American vertebrate paleontology, he had heard about the discovery of these two bodies and was just determined to get a hold of them and enter them into his college's collection. He thought it was a great addition for these doctors to have. 
but it would turn out to be slightly more difficult than the doctor had predicted to get these bodies. See, Leedy showed up to the burial site and decided to speak to the superintendent about gathering the corpses. Unfortunately for him, the superintendent put on, according to Dr. Leedy's colleague, Dr. Hunt, this guy put on a lot of airs, started kind of hemming and hawing, and basically made a very big show as he talked about the violation of graves. Now, I bet this probably gave Leedy a huge freak out, considering at the time, we know that there's a lot of guys out there who are hunting bodies for medical school. Hey, guy, I need this corpse. I'll pass you a little money. Like, can I get the body in the dark and we'll go dissect it? But this isn't quite what Dr. Leedy's talking about. Either way, he's getting the hint and he wants to leave. When Leedy turns to go, the superintendent kind of realizes he's kind of overstepped his bounds and this guy's not getting the hint. So he takes him by the elbow and he just says, you know, it wouldn't be beyond my powers of having to release that body into the hands of a relative. That would be something I would have to do, don't you think? You know, hint, hint, wink, wink. Do you get it? Hint, hint. <laughs> and in fact, Dr. Leedy did take that hint. He left, he got himself a group of furniture movers with a wagon, and he gave the driver a note to give to the superintendent that read, please deliver to bearer of my grandfather and grandmother, you know, my relatives. And who's to say that they weren't? So with that, Leedy managed to get the remains. He also had to make two payments of $7.50 to obtain them, but he definitely got paid back by the college, which is just amazing. Anyways, Leedy looked over these two bodies, and he indicated that these two people came from the Ellen Borgen family, and that he suspected that they had died in 1792 during a yellow fever epidemic. So Leedy kept the female for his college's collection and passed the male off into another collection at a nearby college. And he put under both their names Ellen Bogan. But the woman was only listed as Ellen Bogan. And he, the man, was listed as Von Ellen Bogan, which would indicate that he was some kind of German royalty. It, this is, it was taken as face value for years. It, these were listed. It's in the paperwork, the titles, the name strips. Everything says this is Ellen Bogan. So Dr. Leedy looks over the bodies, and after observing the lack of teeth in the female, he decides that she must have died around middle age or old age. In fact, the description of her at the time was more akin to fat, old, face like a nutcracker, which is not very kind at all. But when you take a look at the pictures, which we're going to put up on our blog and our Instagram and all that, or just easily go Google the soap lady, she's right there. And what you're going to see is that ever-present eternal scream that you see a lot of mummies do. But this doesn't actually indicate almost anything. This doesn't mean she was buried alive. It doesn't mean she died in pain or was murdered. This is just something that simply happens to the human body when we no longer have control over our muscles. Typically, our jaws will just fall open. A lot of the times at funerals, especially even at this time, and this woman had it too, they would put a strap under your chin to keep your mouth from falling open. But once the funeral's over, you're in the ground, and that strap starts to decay, there's nothing to keep your mouth from falling open. And over time, she just simply kind of affixed into this position. On top of that, her body does have a big roundness to it. 
But if you ever look at any pictures of decomposing bodies, you'll note that the body tends to bloat. You can look at a picture of a 16-year-old white girl, and after a certain point of decay, you can look at her, and the body will be so swelled and so purple, that's hard to tell if she's a man, a woman, um, black, white. It, it's, I mean, beyond that, like the, the actual features of a person no longer really look like themselves. And so to me, that largeness just to the belly, whereas all her limbs seem very, like, pretty slim. Um, I would say that she probably had gone through some form of decay, had swollen up, and then after a time, that was the form of the fat tissue that turned into adipocere. But to these guys, she looked fat, old, and a face like a nutcracker. So there you go. So it would be more than 100 years later, in 1986, when we finally got to do our first x-rays of Soap Lady. And they realized from these pictures that the material items from her clothing, they kind of held some clues about who she was. So the pictures revealed buttons and pins. But the problem was, according to the Mutter Museum website, these particular shroud pins that she contained were not manufactured in the U.S. until the 1830s. So there's no possible way that she died in the 1700s. It did, however, manage to debunk the idea that the soap lady was elderly and it more or less asserted that she was probably younger than maybe 40 years old. So you can't just go off looks here because she doesn't really look like herself. But even more damning, in 1987, researchers were trying to figure out who she was. They wanted some records to indicate that she had died in, you know, from yellow fever, that you know, she was where she had been found. The problem was is that there are no records of this because there was no yellow fever outbreak in town at that time period. Nor are there any death records to be found for any individuals named Ellen Bogan until at least 50 years later. So that's probably not their names. In fact, they're probably not even related and have no reason to be connected to one another other than the fact that they were in the same graveyard and the same process happened to both their bodies. Now, eventually, Soap Man would finally be x-rayed in 1994, and this time it revealed to researchers that his age was somewhere between 40 and 50 years old. And he, too, had those similar shroud pins that couldn't have been newer than 1824. So now we at least have them placed in time. There's no way these guys could have died in the early 1820s. They must have died after that. But the most important thing is, like, the difference right now between the two that we've discovered. So as far as the man goes, his clothing has actually been somewhat preserved. His knee-high socks are really well preserved. And it just so happens that his internal organs got preserved as well, which is just amazing. Just like that little baby brain from the 13th century, now we still have some clues to what this guy might have been going through health-wise in life all the way back in the 1800s. And to me, that's pretty cool. Fortunately, Soap Lady wasn't as lucky, I guess, if you would consider that luck. And she, she did not get preserved in the same way. So he takes a lot more care uh, to be preserved. He is at the Smithsonian, but he's not actually view viewable anymore because his body needs to be in a controlled housing unit. So basically, he's a pretty high-maintenance guy. 
you know, researchers are still very excited about being able to do research on him. And maybe with our jumps in medicine, we might soon find out a lot more than we've ever known. I see no reason why we couldn't find some way of connecting this even to DNA samples. The problem is, is like everything's been taking a lot of time. So even after all these x-rays, it wouldn't be until another 20 years later in 2007 that a radiology team from Quinnipiac University took more recent x-rays of Soap Lady. And I say recent because that's still over 10 years ago. So at the time, they managed to still find themselves some more answers. This time, they realized that there's no way this woman is even in like her 40s. In fact, this woman was in her 30s or younger. So Soap Lady gets younger every time we look at her. That must be nice for her. At the time, they took, you know, little samples of like hopefully a liver and other items. But every article I could find, really, there was no follow up with that and perhaps I just didn't search deep enough but you know Soap Lady's not actually going anywhere like I said she's at the Mutter Museum you can visit her today if you want to she's a very unique person and I don't know that you're ever going to see anything like her anywhere else in the world and that's just one more way that we can turn into mummies that I hadn't previously (laughs) thought of so that's that so I just want to take a second to talk about the PodCoin app, because obviously, if you're listening to us right now, you're using some app to play our episode. Well, PodCoin is a free pod hosting app that lets you listen to your favorite podcast while paying you to do it. It's the podcast player that pays. With the coins that you can earn for listening, you can claim a gift card with Amazon or Starbucks, or you can even just turn it right around and donate it to charity. So I figured I was already listening to podcasts anyways. With my kind of job, I can sit down and legitimately just listen to one episode after another. And the thing was, is since I'm doing it all day, every day, I kind of figured why couldn't I turn that into some coins and do something good with it? So I took the coins I got from the PodCoin app. I ended up turning them into dog food for dogs at shelters. This way, I got to do something nice just by doing the thing that I was already doing all the time anyways, and it didn't cost me anything. So if you want to start today, just download the PodCoin app and sign up using our code SNAFUD. That's S-N-A-F-U-D. And you're going to be given 300 PodCoins just for signing up. So go ahead and give PodCoin a try today. And we're back. So I could leave it at that. We could just talk about how bodies just naturally freaking turn into soap and all sorts of wonderful things, but then we wouldn't quite be Snafu'd podcast, would we? Because we just didn't get messed up enough here. So in order to up the ante, I'm going to finish off today by telling you a little about a serial killer named Leonardo Cianciuli, who's also known as the soap maker of Corrigio. So Leonardo was born on November 14th in 1893 in Montella Avellino. Do we feel Italian enough yet? I do not know. So what I can say for certain about her youth is this. Leonardo was a dark-haired, dark-eyed child. She grew up in a tiny mountainous village whose current population is something around 7,000 people. This town is located near what would eventually end up being a national park. So we're talking late 1800s early 1900s. It's a small village. We're probably, you know, probably no electricity. And many of the people in this town, including Leonardo, 
believed deeply in folk mysticism and superstition. This is something like we joke about in movies and on television and whenever we talk about the old Italian grandmother. I mean, are you already waving your fingers in the air right now? Like, I feel it. I feel it. And how they're always talking about, you know, the evil eye or, you know, keeping bad spirits away from you. These are things that Leonardo would have felt very deeply in her community. She would have believed in witches and the evil eye and charms and spells and dream prophecy or really just regular fortune telling. And in fact, one of the most told rumors about Leonardo is that she would visit a fortune teller who told her this terrifying vision that she had. She said that Leonardo would, quote, marry and have children but all the children would die. So, you know, if you this is actually not a bad prophecy considering the fact that if you're, it's the late 1800s, early 1900s and we're in a small village, you can basically guarantee that a young lady is probably going to manage to get married and that at some point she's not going to be able to, to raise all of her children to adulthood. It just is what happens at the time. It just is a little far-fetched that she said, all your children. But either way... This prophecy freaked Leonardo out. Understandably, someone just said, yeah, you'll get married, but all your kids are going to, you know, not make it. And she literally carried this memory around with her for a long time. It was a true fear of hers. Now, beyond that, a few things I found on Leonardo also claim that she had a bad childhood, perhaps that she was the result of a rape and a forced marriage, that essentially like her childhood was filled with abuse and that maybe she had tried to commit suicide at least twice in her youth. She probably suffered from depression and, you know, not a good home life. The only thing is, is I like to take this with a big grain of salt because a lot of the sources that also indicated a lot of these things tended to also misdate her birth. So it's like how much how much can I really take them at a face value if they can't even get that one? But beyond that, I also take it with a grain of salt because these are very big claims of very intimate knowledge of a person that this went of things that they wouldn't have wanted even people in town to have known. Like despite if she's depressed or if she did have these, you know, suicidal tendencies, I don't see like her family um, trying to spread that around town. And what's more important, as we often see in this podcast when we try and talk about stuff from the past, is that if you're just an average person, especially someone like Leonardo, who's in essentially like a country town, then why would there be any kind of weird records kept on you or your family? And if you don't stay in that town, how much do people really remember you, you know, say 30, 50 years down the road? So all these things I just said, I would just, I would say, hear them, but maybe eh, don't necessarily put money down on it. What we do know is that Leonardo would go on to marry at the age of 21 in 1914 to Raphael Pansardi, who happened to be a clerk at the registry office, which is a pretty good job. Now, the rumor is that this marriage was not approved by Leonardo's parents because they aspired to have her marry someone who was much wealthier. And supposedly, Leonardo claimed that this marriage was cursed from the beginning by her mother, who was very upset about it ever happening. However, again, I just want to point out, like, it would be strange that this girl from a supposed bad background 
had some kind of prospects for her to marry very wealthy or the fact that they would be mad that she met a man with a government position, especially because we're talking 1914. This is right before the beginning of World War I. Um, you'd be pretty lucky to probably be in the government. But no matter the circumstances of their marriage, the two got along like rabbits because they would eventually go on to have 17 pregnancies. Yeah, I said 17. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, which is also very common in history, is that most of these children did not survive to adulthood. Uh, Leonardo suffered three miscarriages, which I would say doesn't surprise me at all, considering she was pregnant 17 times. Miscarriage is a lot more common even today than we ever talk about. It's It happens all the time. So most likely in the early 1900s, this was pretty common even more so. After all those pregnancies, and, and Leonardo only had three surviving children, meaning that 10 of her living children unfortunately died some point in childhood to either accidents or sickness. And in the end, this understandably changed her. And it made her, you know, to put it nicely, a doting mother. She was pretty much overbearing. She was very protective. She cared a lot about her kids, understandably. And in the back of her mind, there was always that nagging prophecy that she was going to lose them all. And after losing more than 10 children, I think it's understandable to see that that fear had become very real for her. So in her mind, no matter what, it was her job to protect them. She had to keep her kids safe. So by 1930, she and her family actually ended up being forced to move from their home in Lariano uh, because an earthquake actually destroyed their house. So at that time, the couple and their children ended up settling down in Corrigio. And that's where Leonardo decided to open a small shop. And she kind of fashioned herself as a mystic who was good at removing hexes, like the evil eye. And she must have done a really good job at like integrating with the people and getting to know them. Because in general, a lot of people saw her as nice, kind, a good mom. They trusted her. They even saw her as a poetess of skill. Like, she liked to do poetry. The thing was, is this didn't keep Leonardo from visiting other fortune tellers. Just because she's one now and she does charms and spells herself doesn't mean that she's not still super superstitious. Haha. <laughs> and she's still visiting, like, palm readers. And, in fact, she goes to one and the palm reader evidently said to her that in her right hand, it showed her a prison. And in her left hand, it showed her a criminal asylum, which must have been just super freaking weird to have the end of that meeting. But either way, Leonardo, she started the shop, she got into the community, she raises her kids for another nine years. She's doing just fine until 1939. And that's when she receives some terrible news. It turns out her son, Giuseppe, is going to be called up to serve in the Italian army as World War II starts to come underway. And having lived through the last war, and with this prophecy of her children's death ringing in her ears, Leonardo realizes that she needs to do something. She has got to protect her boy, and she has to act in order to keep him safe. What she's really going to need is to do a lot of protective magic. She's going to need to sacrifice. She would need, well gullible people that wanted to listen to her. And to do this, she ended up having to rely on her clientele of women who relied on her for their folk magic needs. 
It first started with Faustina Seti. And Faustina had come to Leonardo asking for help in finding a husband. A lot of po- people pointed out that she was a spinster and lonely. And the fact is, is we have no idea what her age was. It's just that she wanted to marry. And here she went to the local folk teller, you know, the local witch, the lady that probably could make it happen. And in fact, Leonardo said she could. She convinced Faustina that, in fact, she had the perfect prospect for her, a man in Pola. But she had some very specific rules on how the coupling had to be arranged for it to work out. So like we all have ever heard, if you're going to practice some magic, it's got to be real specific. Here's the guidelines. Here's the wish. But it always comes with rules. And if you were to break those rules, well, then it doesn't work, right? How are you to blame the magician if it doesn't work when you didn't follow the rules? So when it came to this, this was no surprise that Leonardo had roles. First, Faustina couldn't tell anyone until after she'd gotten married. She wasn't going to tell anyone where she, that she was leaving, that she was going to have a husband, that her dreams were coming true. She could tell nobody. What she needed to do was write letters and postcards ahead of time to relatives and friends that would describe that everything was fine. And finally... Some sources say that Leonardo said the cost of this match would end up taking Faustina's life savings, some 30,000 lire. So once Faustina was packed and had all the handwritten letters, the last rule was that she had to come back to Leonardo before departing. Like, this is the completion of our agreement. So diligent to the letter, Faustina showed up and the two women were going to celebrate with a glass of wine. But Faustina's wine was drugged, and Leonardo took the opportunity to kill her with an axe before dumping her body into a closet. So once she killed Faustina, in order to get rid of the body, Leonardo chose to cut it up into nine pieces, and at the same time, she collected all the blood that was spilled into a basin. So she ended up adding the body parts to a pot, and to that she added 7 kilos of caustic acid that she had purchased in order to make soap. And then she stirred, and she stirred, until all the pieces eventually dissolved, which online says probably only takes about 3 hours. Yep, I did that. I did that search. I'm on lists. I took the hit for us all. But eventually, after stirring and stirring and making sure that everything dissolved, eventually her primordial stew became, in her words, thick, dark mush. And then what she did was she poured it into several buckets and then just proceeded to dump it into a nearby septic tank and voila, no more body. But what about all the blood she saved? Well, she waited till it coagulated, got nice and thick, And then she gathered it and cooked it in the oven until it was dry. She then ground it up and she mixed it into tea cakes. Crunchy little tea cakes that she served to herself, her family, her customers. That's right, Leonardo, in fact, is a cannibal. (laughs) And of course, the letters that Leonardo had made Faustina write, they must have obviously worked. At least put them off Leonardo's tracks because she remained a very popular woman to come to for your problems. Nobody seemed to suspect that the reason Faustina just randomly was gone had anything to do with Leonardo. And then her second victim would be Francesca Sovi, who was in search of work. 
So Leonardo promised a position at a school for girls in Piacenza to Francesca. Say, hey, you want to work? Guess what? I got the perfect spot for you. It's going to be a school. What's even better? No boys. Just a bunch of sweet little girls to take care of. But, you know, in order for my magic to work so that you can have this job, so I can guarantee this is your position, you know, I got some requirements. Again, it comes down to secrecy. You can't tell anybody. Also, on top of it, you got to write these letters to friends and family that have to be sent on a, you know, hey, I'm fine, despite the fact that you don't know that you're fine. You wrote these like a month before you thought you'd even be there. But I could see how she probably turned this into some mystical Uh, part of the spell by writing hey I'm here and I'm fine and I'm doing great you were maybe putting your intent you know some something that made these women believe that whatever they were doing had to be done so they did it and finally she had to visit Leonardo before she left and she needed to pay her 3,000 lire so yet again Leonardo is going to make some cash out of somebody else's woe So on September 5th, 1940, Francesca arrived at Leonardo's doorstep, eager to begin her new profession, and thank the wise woman who was going to be providing that to her. Instead, she was greeted with a glass of wine, and then she never walked out of Leonardo's door again. She was murdered with an axe, and then she was similarly boiled down, and then she was just gotten rid of, just like the woman before her. And then only just a few days later... Leonardo was already working on coercing her third victim. So things are really starting to pick up here. And we see this all the time with these serial killers. You know, they get the one kill. Then it's, you know, a couple months or weeks or whatever it be. But at this point, she's not waiting anymore because she has this either desperate need to protect her kid with this sacrifice or maybe simply Leonardo's gotten the taste for killing. Either way, she ends up talking to a beautiful singer named Virginia Cassiopo, who was really impressed with Leonardo and all the all the stuff that she was being promised. Like Leonardo came to her and said that she had a job that she could promise Virginia that she was going to get. And it wasn't singing, which was her real profession, but she was going to be a secretary for an impresario in Florence. Big, beautiful city, very important people. It would be glamorous and she'd be important. And basically, only Leonardo could assure her this position. So once again, Leonardo set down her important directions, same as she's done both times before. You know, you got can't tell anybody, you got to write these letters, and you got to pay me money. And before you leave, you got to visit me. So on September 30th, Virginia showed up to Leonardo's door to complete their deal. She provided 50,000 lire, which was Leonardo's biggest take so far. And for this 50,000 lire, well, Leonardo in turn provided her drugged wine. Leonardo went on to claim that she intended to dispose of this body the same way that she'd done to the previous two, except for Virginia's flesh was fat and white, and she said it melted down to this really creamy color, and she said that she chose to add a bottle of cologne, and that after a long time of boiling, well, she'd managed to make some acceptable soap. So, what does she do with said soap? Well, She's really friendly, so she just gave it to friends and neighbors. And according to Leonardo, not only did Virginia make better soap, but she actually made better cakes, too. (laughs) To quote Leonardo, that woman was really sweet. (laughs) 
which is just so freaking disgusting. Ah. <laughs> but the disappearance, this time, this disappearance wouldn't go quietly. The women before, they seemed to kind of go unnoticed. Maybe they didn't have as many friends or people, family members who were as like interested to know where a little teacher went or some woman said she was going off to get married. You know, she, she disappeared and didn't invite you to the wedding. Maybe you're actually angry at her. But as far as it happened with like Virginia, Virginia's a big personality. I mean, she's even rumored to have sung at the opera house La Scala in Milan, Italy. She's not just some girl from a small village. She has people's eyes on her. And so eventually, Virginia's sister-in-law becomes super suspicious of lack of word from her sister-in-law. She, this is Virginia. This is fancy, I get to see the world Virginia, and she's no longer talking to us? No, this doesn't seem right. So the sister-in-law starts to ask around. Eventually, it kind of comes down to the fact that the last place that anyone had seen Virginia was on Leonardo's doorstep. And not going to take it lightly, the sister went immediately to the superintendent of police and told them her suspicions. My sister-in-law is missing, and the last place she was was in front of that creepy witch's door. Go look into this. And in fact, that's exactly what they did. An investigation was opened right away. And Leonardo was arrested, and upon being arrested, she immediately confessed to the murders, which, in fact, she described in really great, great detail. (laughs) So she was really guilty. She was eventually tried for the murders in 1946. You know, so all this really came down between 1939 and 1940. And she doesn't even see trial until 1946. But really, that's World War II to blame for. At the time of her trial, it happened to be an incredibly popular story. And when you look at the pictures of her court trial, the place is absolutely packed with gawkers, just onlookers and people who just wanted to witness the trial of the woman who supposedly killed people and turned them into soap. So, like, it's just tons and tons of people. And during this whole trial, Leonardo, you know, she's she comes out in this nice dress suit. She just sits there very serenely. You know, she really pushes up this grandmother look to herself. But the thing is, is she's 100% entirely unrepentant. She shows no sympathy. She shows no regret. And she just basically sees nothing wrong with what she did. When the fact is, is she literally ate people. She literally turned human bodies into soap and then gave them away for other people to wash their body with. She is so proud of, the, of what she has done that during the trials, she made a note that she wanted people to realize that she was a good person. In fact, she had even donated her copper ladle that she used to skim the fat off the kettle. Well, she donated this ladle to her country in its time of need, you know, when they were real low on metal. So she's like, she's like a superhero, you guys. Just a really great person. <laughs> no, not really. In the end, Leonardo is obviously found guilty. And she ends up getting sentenced to 30 years in prison. And then on top of that, she's going to be required to also spend three years in a criminal asylum. So it seems like that the palm reader she met before, maybe not have been wrong. So Leonardo would actually spend the rest of her life imprisoned. 
She'd go on to write a book about her experience, the things that she did. And then um, she ended up dying on October 15th in 1970 from a cerebral apoplex uh, while she was at the Women's Criminal Asylum. So she was literally coming up on the end of her time. And fortunately for all of us, she didn't get out. And really, that's the cannibalistic serial killer who, ter- who turned people into soap. And today, you can still visit you can still visit Leonardo's murder pot and some of her other tools. They're all on display at the Criminologic Museum in Rome. Or, you know, you could just not honor a cannibal and not see that. Your choice. But either way, I guess you really want to go take a shower and soap down, right? 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 Maybe? Maybe not? <laughs> oh, well. All right. Well, I'm going to go get myself so fresh and so, you know, clean. And until next week, I hope you guys just stay good and safe. And hopefully, we'll see you soon. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.